Well, good morning, Grace Alive. It is so good to see those of you who are in the room. Oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm used to a context where people talk back to me. Good, good morning, Grace Alive. There we go, there we go. Um, it is so good to be with you all, those of you who are in the room and then those who are uh, watching on whatever device you may be on, uh, scattered throughout the Orlando area and abroad. It is a complete treat to be with you all once again. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and as you're navigating your way uh, there, I just want to give honor to the leadership uh, that God has provided to this church, uh, Pastor Cam and so many others, and the way that God is using them uh, greatly is a joy, a sincere joy to my heart. Last week, I, uh, I had the privilege of sharing with you all from the Word of God, and we went to uh, the easy subject of race and what the gospel has to say about that in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, this week, I want to get into a much easier subject, and that is politics. And so, we're going to have a good time today. Um, so I, I want to talk about, in this voting season, I want to exhort us not just with my idea or with sound bites from CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, I want to lift our eyes off of the TV and set them on the Word of God and how we are to navigate this political process. To help us with that, uh, I want us to look at the words of Paul tucked away in Ephesians chapter 4. Pick me up in verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, someone say unity, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Verse 4, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want to preach this morning from the subject, E Pluribus Unum, out of the many one, out of the many one. Father, would you speak to us? Would we, your people, be that peculiar people that your word talks about? May how we navigate one another and treat one another and love one another in this political season be a witness to who you are. And so show us what that looks like. Show us, Lord God. Give us practical tools. It's to that end, Lord God, that I'm available to you. As the old African-American preachers are known to say, stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue. Those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May Jesus be famous in my labors this morning. It is in his name I pray all these things. Amen and amen. In 2015, um, there was an image of a dress that was, um, that was uploaded onto the social networking site Tumblr. 
some of you all remember, there was an image in 2015 of a dress that was uploaded onto the social networking site Tumblr. Immediately, thousands of individuals chimed in, uh, giving their um, firm convictions on what they knew for sure to be the color of that dress. Not too long after that, that same picture was uploaded onto the social media platform Twitter. And over 10 million people chimed in on what they knew for sure to be the color of that dress. How many people know what I am talking about right now? Some people were convinced that the dress was absolutely blue and black. They were absolutely firmly convinced that this thing, no doubt in my mind, is blue and black. Then you had other people on the other side, um, they had a completely different perspective. I'm talking completely different. They said, no, it's not blue and black, it is gold and white. Now, how many people in the room right now would say it was blue and black, if you, if you remember it? And how many people would say, no, it was gold and white? So, so right here in this room, we understand that there's a diversity of perspectives, and on and on and on, the divide went. And what was mind-blowing was humanity's innate ability to look at the same thing and yet see it incredibly differently. Such is the case when we come to the combustible topics of government and politics. It is amazing how we can look at the same thing and come away with drastically different perspectives and convictions. Some of you right here in this room or streaming us right now would look at government and say, no, 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 government needs to be big. Others of you would look at the same government and say, no, 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 government does not need to be big. Government needs to be, to be small. Some of you, when it comes to the voting process, uh, uh, you've got a wide range of things, but, but for some of you, it all comes down to, um, my candidate has got to be a person who, who is going to uh, protect and preserve life in the womb. You would say that, that I just cannot fathom anyone who would call themselves a Christian and voting in a different direction. There are others of you who would equally say, yes, life in the womb needs to be protected and preserved, but I'm not just concerned about life in the womb, I'm concerned about life outside the womb, and, and so I, I, I want to vote uh, for a candidate who's going to come up with policies that are going to preserve and prosper the marginalized and the oppressed. Still others of you look at the political process and say, God bless both of you, but for me, let's just keep it real. It's all about the economy, silly, and how my 401k is going to be doing at the end of the day. And I haven't even scratched the surface on the difference. I remember some years ago, growing up as a little child, we'd oftentimes go to visit my, uh, my grandfather. My, my grandparents had a home in Roanoke, Virginia. And I remember sitting at the table with my grandfather, watching him and his brother get into huge political debates. Uh, his brother, my great uncle, uh, he's going on to be with the Lord now, Uncle Howard, uh, was a wealthy business owner. In fact, he owned a funeral home in Dayton, Ohio called Loritz Funeral Home. Now, true story, he actually tried to get me to take over the family business. He wanted me to take over the funeral home, and I'm being dead serious right now. 
and so um, he, he was wealthy, and he was, he was staunchly on the side of Republicans. So this would have been back in the 80s. He thought Ronald Reagan was the greatest thing ever. And I would watch as my grandfather would, 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 would disagree. My grandfather was a blue-collar guy who, uh, who, who worked in coal mines and later on would work for a grocery store. And I remember they would go at it. And one time my grandfather turned to me and said, son, whatever you do, make sure you are a Democrat because Democrats put money in our pockets. And I would watch them just go on and on and on. And I felt like we were on the precipice of a huge family rift. Sadly, since those days in the 1980s, we have experienced a huge rift. In fact, a recent Pew study revealed, look at it with me, that the gap between the views of Republicans and Democrats on fundamental issues has increased from 15% in 1994 to 36% in 2017. Ed Stetzer, in his phenomenal book, Christians in an Age of Outrage, says, Sadly, Christians of varying religious traditions, ethnicities, and socioeconomic backgrounds have often followed their non-Christian friends deep into these political divisions. Hear this. Thus, even as the country slowly entrenches itself along political, cultural, and economic lines, professing Christians are often on the front lines of these divisions. So notice what Ed Stetzer is saying, and it just resonates with my spirit. Ed Stetzer is saying the tragedy is not just that Christians are being swept away in the current of the culture. We are on the front lines. Tragically, Christians have allowed Don Lemon and Rachel Maddow and people from Fox News to disciple them more than Jesus. So this message is not about how you should vote. It is about being a peculiar people who in the midst of seeing it differently, love intensely. Because we understand that what brings us together, Jesus, is greater than anything that could divide us. It is in this context now that Paul writes. Paul picks up the pen and out the gate, look at verse 1. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, then underline this word, urge. Paul is writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for urge is a compound word. It is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Kaleo means to call. Para means to come alongside of. It literally means to call to the side. In fact, the best way I can describe parakaleo is this. It is, it is the gesture of come here. Here is Paul, and he's saying to us right now, I know it's I know it's political season. I know it's election season. I know you've got your convictions about who you're going to vote for, but come here. It's as if Paul is saying, I know 2020 has been a doozy of a year, and, and, and you've been distracted by all the racial trauma, and there's stuff you're wanting to post, and stuff you've read other people post who name the name of Jesus Christ, and you're falling out with people, but come here. I urge you. Get off social media. Get off TV. Stop looking at the division in this country. I urge you, walk in the calling that God has ordained for your life, and that calling is unity. 
for Christians to get on Facebook and go at each other's throats in the comment section diminishes our testimony to a lost and dying world. I urge you, walk in unity. Now Paul's going to say three things to us about unity. The first thing Paul wants us to understand is that, watch it now, unity is not uniformity. Or to say it another way, oneness is not sameness. In fact, unity is actually enhanced by the contrast and the differences. It is most clearly seen not when you put people together who all look alike, think alike, act alike, and vote alike. It is when you put people together like Simon the Zealot in Levi the tax collector and Jesus says, love one another. Unity happens and it, it pops and it radiates when you look on the parking lot and there are Trump bumper stickers next to Biden bumper stickers and yet they both love Jesus. And they love one another intensely. We understand that, that Paul is not talking about uniformity because he's writing to a very diverse group of people. In fact, one of the ways we see that is actually in verse 2. Just look at the words he uses to these people. He says, here's how I want you to walk in unity with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, I'm going to unpack these words later on, but here's what I want you to see. These words don't just imply sin. They also imply a body that has a diversity of thought. Think about it with me. Gentleness is most clearly seen in how you handle people who are different than you. So, so, so someone says something or posts something that, that, that I don't agree with. It's just different. How I handle and treat them is with gentleness because it's in the context of difference. Being patient with one another. Patience presupposes difference. I got one nerve left, and this person is breakdancing all over it. You see the difference there? Bearing with. You don't need to bear with people who see it the way you see it. So Paul is not calling us to uniformity. Have your convictions. The other reason why we know that there's diversity here is remember last week. If you read Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, the founding of the church at Ephesus. Remember, Paul goes to the synagogue, preaches Christ to the Jews. Some Jews get saved. He goes to the hall of Tyrannus and other places. Some Gentiles get saved. He doesn't start two churches. He starts one church and says, I want you to work out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for you vertically. And that is reconciliation and unity. In chapter 2, he says, we were in it last week, that God, through Christ, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, now you can rush in and worship together. Now in chapter 4, he's interested in how they treat each other after the benediction in the worship service. It's a multi-ethnic church. Think there aren't some differences there? 
And Paul doesn't call Jews to act like Gentiles. He's not calling Gentiles to act like Jews. He's calling them to unity. See, this is what my friend Rick McKinley in Portland, pastor, calls the beautiful mess of the multi-ethnic church. Multi-ethnic church is a, is a wonderful ideal until you get into the realities of it. Oftentimes, when you put various ethnicities together, oftentimes ethnic diversity breeds all other kinds of diversity. There's theological diversity probably right here in this room. Some of you all, when it comes to the gift of the Spirit, you are cessationists. Others of you, you are open but cautious. Others of you, you are Pentecostal. And others of you have no idea what I just said. And yet Paul says, walk in unity with one another. There's political diversity probably right here in this room. Others of you are, man, I just love Donald Trump. Love everything about him and my 401k. That's who I'm rolling with. I love him. Others of you, never Trumpers. It's no way possible. And, and you're just, in your mind, you're just, you're just going crazy. Like, how can anyone vote for him? Others of you, you're going to go to the, to, to, to the ballot box holding your nose. You're going to go, neither one of them I'm completely satisfied with. And I can't believe these are my two choices. What does Paul say? He doesn't wade into how you should vote. He just says, love each other. Walk in humility with one another. Be gentle with one another. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another in love. Why? Because we're on the same team. Don't forget it. We are on the same team. And that team is not the donkeys. That team is not the elephants. That team is the lamb. So I remember, uh, if you've ever seen uh, the movie 42, which is about Jackie Robinson, played by our dearly departed brother, Chadwick Boseman, may he rest in power. This movie is about, of course, Jackie Robinson, who broke the color line, and he went through horrific things. There's one poignant scene that brought tears to my eyes. It's in the 1940s, and here's Jackie Robinson playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they got to go and play against the Cincinnati Reds, which is just across the river from Kentucky there. And there's, there's just, it's right before the first pitch is thrown, and the stuff the fans are saying at Jackie Robinson, you can just tell it's getting to him, and, and he's getting really discouraged. In the middle of all this, their white shortstop of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who would go on to become a Hall of Fame a player, a guy by the name of Pee Wee Reese, he runs up to Jackie Robinson, drapes his white arm around Jackie black shoulder and whispers words of encouragement to him and pretty much it's, it's an astounding visual diversity but same team shame on the church of Jesus Christ that the NBA can walk in more unity than us same team secondly Paul says that Unity is not uniformity, but the second thing that Paul says is that, hear it now, this is probably the most important point I can make with you. Paul wants us to understand that unity with Christians demands union with Christ. Say that with me. Unity with Christians demands union with Christ. This is his point. 
So here's Paul in the opening verses. He says, here's how I want you to treat each other. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another. We're going to circle back and unpack those terms. But then, beginning in verse 3, he lifts their eyes off of their relationship with one another and the relationship they, had with God, they have with God through his son Jesus. He says in verse 3 that you should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. His point is clear. The only way oneness with other Christians works is when you walk in oneness with God. It's the only way this thing works. Show me two Christians who are divided, and I will inevitably show you at least one Christian who is not walking in union with Christ. Galatians chapter 5, I commend it to you. Verses 16 to 26, there was a period of time in my Bible college years in which I just read Galatians 5, 16 to 26 every morning before I left my dormitory to go to class. It is, it is a stunning passage. Here is Paul is talking about what union with Christ looks like as we walk in the power of the Spirit of God, but then he contrasts that with life in the flesh. Life in the flesh is simply me saying, I hear what you have to say, God. I hear what you have to say, Holy Spirit. But move to the side. I'm going to be in control. When Paul talks about the works of the flesh, the marks of a person who is not walking in union with Christ, he lists out 15 traits, 15 marks of a person who is walking in the flesh. Eight of those marks are relational dysfunction and disunity. Notice what he says. Look at it with me. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 20, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. You see what he's saying there? If two Christians are in relationship with one another... And all of a sudden there's disunity, there's division, there's dissension, there's enmity, there's strife. There's no way both of them can be walking in the power of the Spirit of God. His point is clear. See, sin is not just personal, it's also social and relational. When you and God are off, It's going to manifest itself in your relationships. Corey and I, my wife and I have been married for 21 years, and uh, if I could invite you into my home, there's a, there's a little snarky statement we've developed with one another over the years, and it goes like this. Typically, it happens around mid-morning, uh, sometime before noon. Uh, one of us will be crabby with the other. Let's say I'm crabby with Corey. I'm snapping at her and, and, and just not treating her right. She'll say to me, ooh-wee, someone has not had their time with Jesus this morning. Not helpful. Don't recommend you trying that. But do you see her point? We ain't right because you and Jesus ain't right. See, I, I want to save you $150 an hour in therapy. Ain't nothing wrong with therapy. 
But some of you all can save your money if you just try walking in the Spirit. See, this idea of union with Christ is a big deal with Paul. If you read his letters over 160 times, Paul says to believers that you are in Christ, in Christ, to the saints who are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When I'm right vertically with God in Christ, that plays itself out horizontally with others. So what does this look like? Give me something practical, Pastor. What does union with Christ look like? Jesus tells us in John 15. He says, if you abide in me and I in you, and he talks about how a tree cannot bear fruit unless it, 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 it a, a vine cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the, in the branch. And, 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 and then he goes on to just talk about neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. The Greek word for abide, it means to remain. Now what I'm about to say is going to mess you up. John 15 and this emphasis on abiding in Christ, union with Christ, remaining with Christ, does violence to the quiet time culture we've been brought up in. Many of us have been taught, have a quiet time with the Lord, and that's it. So, so spend 15 minutes with God in the morning, you're good. Spend a half hour, you're good. Spend an hour, you're good. Hear me. Quiet times are good, they're essential, they're necessary. I do them. But the problem with, with that approach is, it, it just says, okay, I've checked the box, I've spent time with God, now the other 23 hours and 45 minutes of the day are mine. That's not abiding in Christ. Sort of like in this room right now, there's probably two different theologies on hot tea. I love hot tea. Some of us in this room, when it comes to hot tea, we're dippers. We take the tea bag and we put it in the hot water and put it in there for a few moments, then we take it out. We're, we're dippers. And that's how some of you are with your walk with God. You've got that quiet time. You're, you're, you're putting your life in the water of Christ for a few moments in, moments in the morning, then you're out. There's a different theology on tea in this room. There's dippers, but then there's steepers. Where I put that bag in there and I leave it there. And I let it marinate. Paul is saying, Christian, if you want unity with other Christians, you have to steep in Christ. Not in and out. Remain. Abide in Christ. So before you post on Facebook, are you abiding in Christ? Before you send out that tweet, are, are you abiding in Christ? Finally, as we round third and head for home, let's end with a lot of what I call vitamin A application. Paul talks about that unity is not uniformity. Secondly, he talks about that unity with Christians demands unity, union with Christ. But thirdly and finally, let's go home on this. Paul gives us some very practical ways in which we can unleash unity right here at Grace Alive. How do I unleash this? 
Again, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, he says, come here, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We'll we'll find out that later on this is all about unity, verse 3. But then if you look at verse 2, he says, here's how you walk in unity with people. He says, first of all, you need to walk in unity with others with all humility. The idea of humility, it, in, in the Greek word, it, it means to be brought low. Now, 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 Paul is not saying have low self-esteem. Paul is not saying don't have confidence. Paul is not saying uh, think bad about yourself. Paul, using this word humility, he's not calling us in how we measure ourselves against one another, but it is the proper estimation of myself compared to a holy, lofty God. That's why Andrew Murray, the great South African 19th century pastor, in his book, Humility, says this. Will you look at it with me? He writes, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. That's what it means to walk in humility. But this is unnatural for us. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, says that the fountainhead to all vice is pride. All sin goes back to the common denominator of pride. We are all selfish, self-centered, narcissistic individuals. That's how we came out the womb. Like your infant is not lying in her bed a couple weeks old at 2 o'clock in the morning going, you know what, mom and dad got to go to work in the morning and they need a good night's rest and you know what, I'm hungry right now, but I'm going to table my needs so that mom and dad get what they need. They can go to work and provide for me. That's not how an infant thinks. An infant screams, I'm hungry right now. Get your tail out of bed and take care of me. And we never lose that. If you're into soccer... This is a true story. Ronaldo, Ronaldo and Messi um, are regarded historically as, you know, in the 21st century as the, the two greatest soccer players. Well, they were in an interview once, and um, the interviewer asked Ronaldo, this great soccer player, what's your purpose in life? And Ronaldo says, God sent me here to teach people how to play soccer. And immediately Messi chimed in and said, I don't recall sending you here. A little bit tongue-in-cheek. And none of us would have the audacity to think that, but that's what pride is. Pride is spiritual plagiarism. It is taking the credit that belongs to God without citing your source. And so how does this work itself out politically? Prideful, arrogant people can never see the good in the other party and can never see the bad in their own. You take your perspective and you use it and weaponize it as a tool of oppression to beat down people who don't think like you think. I knew I didn't get any amens on that one. So let's get practical here. What what does it mean to be humble in the political process? David Platt has just come out with a book called Before You Vote. 
And in this book, he gives us some helpful questions to ask. And, and I think these are questions born out of humility. And so what does this look like me if, you know, I'm a Democrat, which I'm not, and I view Republicans, or I'm a Republican, which I'm not, I'm a registered independent, and how I view Democrats. How, do, how does humility play itself out in how I look at the opposing party? Platt gives three questions. Number one, are there any concepts of biblical justice we see in the opposing party? And it is, I'll just pick anybody. They are quoting and endorsing Candace Owens. Two kinds of people right now in this room or tuning in. When it comes to conflict, there's typically sharks and turtles. When an issue comes up, something I don't like, shark smells blood, we're going to handle this. I'm going to set them straight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google the latest research or give them the latest statistics. I'm going to shut this bad boy down. And then there's turtles. Conflict comes. See, see, I see this a lot in multi-ethnic churches. Conflict comes. It just seems like all of a sudden we've been talking about race a lot. And, you know, one group's getting really loud and turning up the volume. And then you got another group just going, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. So instead of doing Matthew 18 and trying to have some conversations where you go, let me just sit down and let me just try to understand. What, what, What happens is a certain group of people just take their ball and go home. I'm out. Paul says to sharks, be patient. Paul says to turtles, be patient. Hang in there. Finally, he says, in bearing with one another in love. The idea of the phrase bear with, here it is. It means to endure something unpleasant. That's what y'all been doing with me for the last 35 minutes. <laughs> oh. Please hurry up and get this done. Paul says, bear with. Okay, they don't see it the same way you do. Bear with them. Okay, they're going to vote in a different direction. Bear with them. See, here's my my thing to you. You know grace alive that you're walking in unity, not when one group is talking and the other group is silent. But it's when both groups feel so loved by one another, feel so secure by one another, that they are free to express variant viewpoints, even to enter into conflict and disagreement, because they know at the end of the day, you're not going to leave me, and I'm not going to leave you, because we're on the same team. Paul says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Isn't it interesting that Jesus exemplifies all of these things? Jesus was humble. Philippians 2 says of Jesus that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are saved by the humility of Jesus. He didn't have to die. He didn't do anything to deserve it. But in humility, Jesus says, I'll take on your debt. Jesus is gentle. He's not abrasive with us. He's gentle. That's why one of the predominant images of Jesus is the lamb. 
And Lord, have mercy. Is he not patient? And does he not bear with us? Can I get a witness? If Jesus was as impatient with us as we are with others, we wouldn't have lasted a day. But he's patient. And he does all this. Paul says, bear with one another in love. He uses the Greek word agape. Agape love is different from all other kinds of love because agape love is a sacrificial commitment, a selfless commitment to bring out the best in the object loved. That's why the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's why Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not treat us the way we deserved, but God laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life so that we could have eternal life. And in some way, shape, or form, to be a Christian means we flesh these things out horizontally with one another because God has done that vertically for us. So my prayer for you, Grace Alive, in these divided times, that you would be a peculiar people. That there would be unity, not uniformity. That you would love one another, have your convictions, vote your spirit-filled conscience, but make room for others who see it differently and love. So, Father, we bless you. We absolutely bless you. I need to hear this word. Forgive us of our arrogance. Forgive us for the silly, petulant tantrums we throw on social media. Forgive us for the way we treat one another, we go at each other's throats, or just silently set up walls and head for the exits. Forgive us. May we walk out our calling of unity. May that unity be seen in contrast. May it be a testimony to the power of the gospel that brings people from all walks of life and puts them on the same team, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.